He left home and never looked back. Chapter 2, he called the Paul Leslie Hour. And that's where we are today. I'm Don Giller, and now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Jason Zinneman is joining us. He's a writer of the column On Comedy for the New York Times. He's contributed to other prestigious publications, such as Vanity Fair, The Guardian, and Slate. He's authored a few books. Recently, his New York Times bestseller, Letterman, The Last Giant of Late Night, was published as a softcover. Jason Zinneman, how are you, sir? I'm great, and it's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm really honored that you would join us. I really, really enjoyed the book very much, so much so that I read it twice. Oh, my God. You're, <laughs> you're the best. You're the, you're the perfect kind of reader. <laughs> I was going to write a top ten list on why you should do an interview with me if you had declined my request. <laughs> oh, I should have made you work harder. I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have been such a cheap date and just said yes right off the bat. Yeah, uh, it sounds like you're a you're a you're a big Letterman fan. No, you would be correct. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Dating how far back? Oh gosh, I would say. Going back from the time I was like uh, 10, 11 years old. Wow. Okay. So that the, the, the uh, uh, and do you have a, like a, uh, do you have like a favorite era or period or? Uh... Uh, I would say, I would say late 80s, early 90s would be my spot. Yep. 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 I think we're on the same page. <laughs> I think we're on the same page. The, uh, Partially because, I mean, there's sort of, uh, you know, when I wrote the book, I sort of went back and watched all the, you know, the shows to, to try to look at them with a clearer eye. But of course, the way you really watch them is like, you know, with somebody who's on TV for three decades, you change so much over the course of watching this, this show and this person. And the things that you watch as a 10-year-old or as a 15-year-old, which is, you know, how old I was when it was in, in you know, in 1990 or whatever, or as, a, or as like a 17-year-old or 18-year-old, my math is right, when he leaves NBC to go to CBS, is formative in a way that, you know, the, the show that you watch as, you know, 30-something is not. So I have very fond and intense feelings about his late 80s early 90s which says more about me than it does about him <laughs> well on the note of watching episodes something that i noticed in the acknowledgments was that you said that the original plan you wanted to watch all 6024 episodes <laughs> yes yes <laughs> one of the many stupid ideas i began with this book with the uh <laughs> that, that that I mean, it seemed it's uh, on the face of it. I was like, well, I'm gonna write a book about some guy who did a show. You got to see the show, right, to do the book. You have to. See, I obviously have to see everything, and but that's a lot of shows, and it proved very difficult, or much more difficult than I anticipated, to just track them down. And uh, I mean, I ended up watching a huge number of those shows, you know, I probably, you know, got, I got into the, into the thousands, 3000 say. Wow. But all, all 6,000, I, I did not, I did not, I did not get to. 
you were asking me, so now I would ask you, how did you come to experience this phenomenon we know as David Letterman? Your first exposure. My first exposure was as, I wish I remembered the actual first show of his I saw, but I, I remember in the you know early mid 80s you know staying up past my bedtime and you know turning the tv on because i was you know i was like a real i i was addicted to tv as a kid my parents used to call me mike tv the character from charlie and the chocolate factory who <laughs> couldn't stop watching tv so I, i'd watch everything on tv you know three's company whatever game shows everything but back in those days if you stayed up late and you snuck over to turn the TV on, there weren't a lot of options. And that was, that stuck out to me as so bizarre and unusual and, and cool. And it felt like, like a kind of, it felt like there was, you know, there was an inside joke there that I didn't entirely get. You know, I'm thinking now of re reoccurring jokes like the, um, the giant doorknob. <laughs> Uh, which just like, I, or, you know, how Letterman would say a phrase and he would just repeat it over and over again and until it just didn't make any sense what he was doing. And, and I remember watching it and thinking there's something, there's something cool going on here. I don't totally understand it. And if I keep watching it, maybe I can kind of decode what is going on. Which I, I actually weirdly think of it, uh, associated with Bob Dylan lyrics. Because at, at the same time, I started listening. My brother was really into Bob Dylan, and I was listening to Bob Dylan, and I bought a book of his lyrics. And, you know, Dylan is sort of famously cryptic. And, you know, you, you, so I would just, like, sit down and, and listen to Ballad of a Thin Man and study the lyrics and try to <laughs> probe them, read, listen, read it over and over and over again, and try to decode what he's saying and read other biographies of Dylan and try to figure and uh, I think in a lot of ways it was the birth of me being a critic because, you know, criticism is a lot just studying and trying to, part of it is trying to unpack complicated artistic texts. So Letterman, unlike so many things on TV that seemed all surface, seemed like there was a lot hidden and a lot of secret meanings and I wanted to know more. So you liked that it was kind of a world unto itself. Yes, yes. Well, that is a, precisely that 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 seemed exciting to me. That this was not just a guy telling jokes. That this was a, a guy, just as you put it, who created a world and, and a sensibility that wasn't necessarily easily accessible. And it's funny, like these days, there's a there's a lot of talk in popular culture today about world creating. You know, there's a, that. Um, you know, there's the Marvel universe or, or there's the, you know, the world of a TV show that, like Mad Men that's very complex. I think it, it sort of goes without saying that there's a pleasure now in unpacking the mysteries of some world. But back then as a kid, it wasn't like I was reading recaps and, <laughs> you know, obsessing over reading tweets and being kids. There, there wasn't any of that stuff. You, I was a kid who grew up in, you know, suburban Maryland and then Washington, D.C., who didn't have real, you know, wasn't reading criticism outside of maybe Tom Shales in the Washington Post. And so it was just me seeing this, this strange Indiana broadcaster and trying to figure out what, what was so funny about it. 
We're joined by Jason Zinneman, and he's the author of Letterman, The Last Giant of Late Night. What would you say that it was that inspired you to write this book? Well, I would think two two things. There's sort of the personal and the professional. The personal is sort of what, what we've been talking about, which is that like, I, I wanted to, you know, because it was so formative for me, Late Night with David Letterman, I wanted to understand this better to understand my own sensibility better. It, you know, it sounds selfish, but it's true. But the, you know, the bigger thing is that, you know, a couple of years ago or several years ago, I um, became the, the, you know, the comedy critic of the New York times. And, and, and in you know, that capacity, I realized in talking to a lot of comedians that, you know, here was a guy who had this huge impact on popular culture and yet also remained a, a bit of a mystery to a lot of people. So I thought, well, if part of my job is to try to understand and report about comedy today, that here's a guy who in a lot of ways is kind of a, you know, a touchstone or Rosetta Stone to understand it. So I thought like the, uh, somebody's going to write a big biography of him and, you know, I, I want, why not me? Hmm. Amongst the people who are serial Letterman viewers <laughs> of any era, would you say that you notice any kind of commonality, anything that they have that's in common? Uh, for for viewers, the fans, yeah, the fans. That's an interesting question. That's an interesting question. I, I'm I hesitate to make overly sweeping generalizations. In that he had a massive fan base. I mean, this is a you know he was on network television at a time when the numbers were much larger than they were today. So, you know, it was, but that said, you know, they, they skewed young, they skewed male, they probably skewed white is my guess. And I think, you know, I mean, certainly at the time the idea was that, Oh, he, 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 you know, he, he tapped into this college market demographic but that that you know of course changed as over the course of 30 years i think his audience changed but i wouldn't want to overstep he definitely you know there women watched him too it wasn't like he was he was uh it was just one gender but i think i think if you were to say oh what's the stereotypical letterman fan that would be it i think also you know people with an interest in unusual alternative, you know, what became known as alt comedy. Letterman came up among other ways in through comedy clubs, you know, through the comedy store in LA, but his, I think if you were to track his sort of artistic influence, he gave a platform to a lot of comedians who were unusual, you know, Pee Wee Herman or Andy Kaufman or people who weren't comedians like, uh, you know, Howard Stern, people who, were later later on would become i think much much more dominant in terms of the kind of artistic landscape it wasn't just your standard setup joke comics so i think people with an interest in innovation and unusual comedy were also more drawn to letterman than say to to tonight show we had one time on this show the comedian tom dreesen and it was right around the time where letterman was wrapping up his television days. And he said, if you like Letterman, get a good look now because you'll never see him again. <laughs> and now, <laughs> now he has this, this show on Netflix, my next guest. 
And I'm very curious to know what you think about that. Huh. I I mean, it's a pleasure to see him back on television, first of all, or to see him back in. And I think some of the episodes have been, like I think this last one with Tina Fey has been, was quite good. And in theory, I think it's a great idea that by the end of his career, his strength was probably, you know, long form conversation and, you know, spontaneous, spontaneous talk. And that's where the show is. It does, it's not about doing a monologue or, or doing comedy bits. It's about long form conversation and, you know, intelligent long form conversation. So, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a good idea and there's things that, but the, the, I do have a few disappointments with it. I think it's, it's shot in a strange way. It's, it's kind of a, a little bit of a, a camera moves around too much for my taste. And I think some of the episodes seem a little like the, the, the match of host and guest seem a little awkward. And I think like, I, I, I'd rather, I think he's at his best when he's with somebody he's incredibly comfortable with and who's willing to be, to kind of play with him and be even, even a little bit confrontational. And that hasn't been the case. This is generally speaking, it's, it's like he's been with people who, where he's playing more of a kind of a journalistic role. And uh, so, so anyway, the point I, I guess to sum up, I, I like it, but it's not everything I was hoping. Hmm. Yeah. I think you're tapping into something really interesting here. And you go into this in the book, and I thought it was one of the really compelling parts of the book, and that's that Letterman was kind of a pioneer in getting to know people who were not celebrities. I mean, I think some of the most interesting bits was when he would go visit somebody like Rupert G., or just... And, and a person who yep. was not trying to be famous. And that kind of became something that really changed our pop culture and our media. When you look at all the reality shows, he did that, you know, turning the camera on everyday people. So yes. I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about that, that quality that he had. Yeah, no, I think you, you're absolutely right. That's a thing that I am fascinated with and I think is is an underrated uh, legacy of his and that people forget that it was incredibly unusual to go on the street and turn interactions with ordinary people into comedy bits that, you know, the daily show made its bones on, on that. And now every, you know, Conan does and all sorts of places do, but Letterman really was doing something new there. And, and also just bringing the faces of non-celebrities and you know, he, he thought they were as funny as actors and non-actors. And then on a broad, you know, you, you point out this reality television that I think is, you know, that, that's a point I made in the book that I, that, you know, didn't occur to me when I started the book, but when I started to look at the history of reality television and its relationship to late night, it became clear, which is that, you know, the, the, there really wasn't, a whole lot of reality television in the eighties, but there was a little boomlet of in the early eighties. There was a show called real people. And, you know, and, and before that there was a PBS show called the American family. And then there were sort of, this isn't reality, but the, but Albert Brooks's book, real life was sort of playing on these themes of ordinary people becoming famous. And late night was in this kind of early, I think if you write a history of reality television was in this kind of boomlet in the early eighties, then you fast forward to 
the real turning point, which is the premiere of the real world on MTV, which is, I think, 92 or 93, that's when reality television really exploded and started to replace scripted dramas as you know, a major kind of part of the cultural diet. And what's interesting is that that's precisely the moment that you know, Letterman is moving from NBC to CBS and is at the height of his success. And you know, what I argue in the book is that you know, the, this stage of, of you know, Letterman in the, in the early 90s and late 80s is one where part of the, the fun of the show is in not in the jokes and not in the punchlines, but in him as a character, sort of him telling stories about being stopped for speeding or him complaining about his bosses at GE or, you know, him, his rivalry with Jay Leno and trying to get the Tonight Show that he became sort of a hero of this, his own reality show and, or him talking to the woman across the way, sort of flirting with her as kind of romantic interest, that he became the center of this reality show about him. And I think a lot of the pleasure of watching Late Night in that period was similar to the pleasure people had of watching the real world or the many, 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 many reality shows that followed. So he, you know, the argument I make is that he sort of anticipated the boom of reality television. I wanted to get kind of a few of your, your favorites, if you will, what would you say would be the one bit that just never fails to make you laugh? <laughs> um, I think that would have to be um, uh, Just Bulbs, which I don't know if you know that one, but there's a, a, there's a, re- a remote piece he did in, I believe it's 85, right around there, maybe earlier, where there's a, a store in New York, I believe it still exists, called Just Bulbs, and it just sells light bulbs. And he went in there, and he, you know, basically plays dumb and says, like, you know, can I get a uh, lampshade? And I said, no, no, we just sell, sell bulbs. And he, bulbs. And he goes, can I get a whatever, a sandwich? No, 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 we just sell bulbs. And he was like, well, what about, a, you know, I forgot, maybe, maybe eventually it was shades. And then the woman said, well, to get that, you have to go to Just Shades. And they cut to... Uh, <laughs> A store called Just Shades, and he has the same thing over and over. And it's just like a perfectly structured comedy bit with the beginning, middle, and end, but with real people acting. You know, they're such like classic New York characters, these people, and they're clearly not being, they're not scripted. And he plays the kind of dope in it. And, you know, I've shown this, I've shown it, I've watched it countless times, I've shown it to my kids. They crack up. It just, it hasn't aged a day. So that that really is a uh, that 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 would probably be it. There were certain celebrities who would appear regularly on the Late Show. You know, you 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 always would see certain people like Bill Murray or Tom Hanks was a frequent guest. What would you say was your favorite regular guest? Um, I maybe Howard Stern. Howard Stern, I think, or Terry Garr, one of those two. I mean, I always liked people that were disruptive. Yeah. Charles Grodin, you know, was another one. I mean, Andy Kaufman, obviously. But people who uh, made him uncomfortable, put him ill at ease, but, but he, he still respected and liked, so he was game to play. Those people were, I thought, really interesting to watch. 
you know, there, there, there's also the genre of people he didn't like, which were also interesting to watch, but they, but obviously they wouldn't have him on that often. But the people like Stern, someone like Stern, who, you know, he clearly really respects, and they 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 do a similar thing. They're both broadcasters, but they're also at the same time wildly different. You know, Letterman is this button-up, repressed Midwestern Gentile, and Howard Stern is this you know shock jock, you know outrageous Jewish broadcaster that, who you know talks about sex and and all of these taboo subjects that Letterman wouldn't want to touch. So that that kind of oil and water quality made them interesting. And, and that, and as a matter of fact, that's the last episode of his Netflix shows him and Howard Stern. So I'll be really interested to see what that's like. I think he said something to the effect that the Stern one is the best one. Is that right? Is I that think right? so. Oh, that's exciting. <laughs> so that's, look forward. That's exciting. And I, I'm not surprised. I mean, he always, Stern always brought his a game and, you know, he was a big character in the, you know, he, I always saw it as Stern sort of expressed, his id, Letterman's id, like the things that he Letterman didn't want to really say out loud, Stern <laughs> would. And that's particularly true if you look back at his episode, and you can look, find them all on YouTube, his episodes about the uh, uh, Leno, where you know Stern is merciless about Leno in a way that Letterman never would, but you know he really deeply agreed with. <laughs> <laughs> Something that has been written about lately that I'm hoping you can – maybe share a couple of your favorite memories regarding would be the Letterman connection to music. Mm. It's been talked about that he's such a, such a fan of music. And I have pretty vivid memories of seeing certain musical performances on there. And I'm hoping you can maybe share a couple that have been memorable for you. Hmm. That's an interesting question. You know, they, uh, I don't there is a there's an episode if I'm remembering this right with uh, Sly and the Family Stone that's really amazing. That is uh, I think with Sly and the Family Stone and George Meyer might have been the guest of one. I mean, maybe I'm getting that wrong, but uh, that was a that was an amazing performance. I mean, Dylan was an amazing performance. Yeah, you know, he actually I just recently was watching when he had the Beastie Boys on on his new show doing Sabotage right like the week he came out. That was Fantastic. I mean, obviously, Elvis Costello was always wonderful on the show. You know, the Sonny and Cher duet was really memorable. It's interesting. You had 33 years of popular culture, so you had so many great musicians. Uh, I mean, he did like certain kinds of, I think, hard rock that he would bring back. But, but, uh, but yeah, those, 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 those are those are a few. What about you? What, 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 what were your favorite musical uh, <laughs> musical performances? Uh, I will say this: I would echo you uh, in that the the night we called it a day from Bob Dylan at the very end. Uh, yep. The night before that, on the radio, I played that song by Bob Dylan. Really? It was kind of eerie. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That is eerie. That is eerie. You know, it's just it's just a coincidence. I mean, it's not like. He's got Dylan's got a, a huge repertoire, obviously. So that is a weird, that is an amazing coincidence. Yeah, the guest was actually at the Ed Sullivan Theater when it was being taped. I mean, the guest on on my show, and she said the same thing. She said, "Wow, the hair, the little hairs on my arm are standing up." But in addition to that, <laughs> I would say when uh, Tracy Chapman came on towards the end and sang "Stand by Me," I got misty eyed. 
It was just beautiful. Yeah. And then there's that famous Future Islands performance. Yes. <laughs> I have to watch yes. that about once a month. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is amazing. That is amazing. You're right. You're right. The uh, those 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 were all great. No, I mean I'm 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 forgetting a bunch, but that there. But isn't there also like I know Paul Schaefer when he's asked this question, I think he cites James Brown. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's like an incredible James Brown performance. But uh, but yeah, there's so many. We're joined by Jason Zinneman. He's the author of Letterman: The Last Giant of Late Night. What is the most surprising thing that you learned? from the process of writing this book? Hmm. I think, you know, surprising in terms of what I didn't know going into it was just the extent of which writers contributed critical ideas to what the show was, you know, or another way to put it would be how collaborative the you know, late night and the late show were, which I think, you know, if you watch these shows, it just looks like it's, it's a guy talking and expressing himself on TV. So it's like one solitary, it's his thoughts and his ideas. And if you read the press about these shows, you're not disabused of that idea. They're basically written about as if it's, you know, this is the starter and this is the creative, he's the creative force of it. You know, he's the auteur whether it's Letterman or Leno or Conan, whoever else. But the reality is that just like any, just like theater or film or whatever, there's a whole lot of people go into making these shows. And many of them in the case of Letterman are critical to the parts of his sense of humor that get the most acclaim that are in deservedly. So, so, you know, that's why the book is not just a biography, but also you know, tells the the story of Meryl Marco, who you know created the show with them, and is really as responsible as he is for creating the sort of aesthetic of the '80s Letterman and Chris Elliott, who you know really plays a singular role in the history of the show, and you know the early Lampoon writers like you know George George Meyer and and uh, Max and Tom, and you know people like Randy Cohen and and so many other uh, writers who came up with you know, the ideas that really made the show what it is. Not to mention people like, you know, Larry Bud Melman, who, you know, you, you stumble upon that guy. It's like, there's not 50 Larry Bud Melmans out there. There's just one. <laughs> and he's, uh, and he's funny in a very specific way. And, you know, one thing that I, in doing a lot of the reporting for this, two different head writers said to me is they said, oh, you know, I would say, oh, what, what, what is Letterman? What are his strengths? And, and what two of them said was that, you know, he's best in reaction. Hmm. And so if that's the case, and I think it's, it is, then who he's reacting against is really critical. So I think people like Larry Budd and Chris Elliott and some of these writers are tremendously important to, you know, the history of, of, of this guy's work. And I think that's something interesting about this book is that there's a lot of different voices. You mm -hmm. got the chance to interview David Letterman, but there's these other people. You mentioned Meryl Marco. Who would you say when you got the chance to speak with them, did you find particularly fascinating? Mm, that's a really good question. Particularly fascinating. There were so many people. I mean, 
Steve O'Donnell, who, you know, not many people know his name, but he was the head writer. I'm hoping I'm getting these dates right, but I think from 84 to 90, and he started before that. And he really, you know, those were, those were really fertile years, if not the most fertile, most innovative years. And, you know, in a lot of ways, he is like Letterman in that he's a kind of Midwestern guy with sort of blue collar roots. And he had this real innovative, creative streak, this kind of oddball streak, but it's a, it's a subtle one. You can, you can kind of miss it. And he's a, incredibly, and I, I interviewed him many times and for many hours, several times and for many hours. And he's just a very cerebral, thoughtful, smart guy. Besides being a funny guy, he was incredibly, you know, I learned a lot just talking to him. He just has a very interesting mind. And, uh, you know, not a, uh, you know, one of these people who's like a kind of quiet, you know, has a quietly anarchic sensibility. You know, if you just see him, you think, you know, he's just sort of like a guy in khakis. But he's actually has a quite a, um, an offbeat way of looking at the world. And there's a lot of people like that. I think if I was to make generalize the kind of people who flourished in that show, people like, like Hal Gurney, it's an incredibly interesting guy, the director of the show, and also just somebody who was incredibly innovative with, with what to do with the camera and finding jokes, visual jokes, that no talk show host, no talk show director had gotten before. So, and it's also a very sophisticated, interesting guy george meyer a lot of these writers frankly i found really really interesting uh, i mean you know they're they uh and and unexpected you know Mel marco of course who's you know a major figure in the book but so yeah they, they were all really really fascinating i mean if i have a regret like there's a few people i would have loved to talk to who i couldn't because they passed away i mean like larry bud melman but well, originally one of my goals was to do like a whole chapter on like figuring him out um <laughs> and i and you know he's from brooklyn and actually grew, went to school not far from where i live and you know has the interest was like a, a real showbiz fanatic and who had like a day job while he was appearing on late night and um you know was sort of a you know he was an interesting guy in a lot of ways and to the extent that he was how in on the joke he was is a is a matter of disagreement on the show or or among people i should say so he's he's one person who i think is really interesting but i didn't talk to this is probably a difficult question but who would you say had the biggest hand in creating the entity we know as letterman other than letterman well, that would be Meryl Marco. That's not difficult. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's uh, I mean, that, that is, and the argument for that is she came up with Stupid Patrick's viewer mail. She did all the remotes. And, you know, according to most of the writers, including to, uh, you know, including Letterman himself, depend, you know, that the more sort of adventurous aspects of the comedy early on were advocated by her. And then once he got a reputation for doing kind of adventurous, unusual stuff, then they did more of that stuff. So the fact that she had that voice early on, I think made her really critical. I mean, essentially, you know, I started the book with, with, with a bunch of different questions that I didn't know the answer to. And one of which was how could this guy who's like this Midwestern 
conventional fraternity brother who revered Johnny Carson produced this deeply irreverent, unusual, unorthodox show. And, you know, one of the answers to that is Meryl Marco. It's not the only one, but she was a major, a major piece of that puzzle. How would you describe her? What was she like to communicate with? She was, I spent a huge amount of time talking to her. And the most useful of that was on the page, which I think is telling. Um, which is to say that she's a writer first. You know, we would email back and forth. You know, I also went to her house in LA and talked to her, but I think she is a word person, as she would say. You know, her, you know, she loved Robert Benchley, or loves Robert Benchley, people who write comedy and pay, uh, are sensitive to the language of comedy. So is Letterman, for that matter. So she is somebody who uh, is very, you know, analytical. I think she has a wide, a uh, silly streak, you know, she likes, she likes a, a, a kind of a mood of comedy, you know, which is, <laughs> I think there's some people who are really like a hard punchline, uh, you know, a sharp incongruity. And I think she really likes to set a kind of funny mood. And she's also like somebody who uh, has lived a pretty fascinating and, and full life. She's a pretty relentlessly interesting person. I mean, she, uh, you know, she was around in the seventies comedy scene in LA. Um, you know, she was obviously doing late night in the eighties. Then she, she's written a bunch of books. She's written for all sorts of TV shows. I mean, she's, she's seen a lot of show business and knows, and, uh, you know, it was been around everyone from Andy Kaufman to Robin Williams. And so she's not, um, she's not cynical. She's not jaded, but she's, you know, she's, she's, you know, she she talks about this stuff as someone who's been there, not 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 as a fan or an appreciator. You know. Hmm. I'm hoping you can tell us about kind of the journey that you took when you proposed this interview with Letterman. Mm -hmm. Were you confident? Were you nervous? I was. I was nervous. That's that's true. Uh, <laughs> the uh, I think the. Uh, it was a long journey. It was a, it was, you know, I, I of course began the project asking for that and I did, and they never said no, but they didn't say yes for a year and a half. So there was always the possibility that I wouldn't get the interview and the book was premised on the idea that I wouldn't need to get the interview. So I, um, so I, I think that was good because it, it made me really work hard to report around it and talk to as many people as possible. And then after the show ended and months later, you know, when they agreed to maybe to do the interview, I think it was originally planned for just an hour. And so I think most of my nerves were that I had, you know, a year and a half, two years of reporting and research full of questions and an hour is like nothing. So once I, I most of my time was spent trying to just get to the essentials. But then once I got into the interview, I realized that he would have talked for as long as I wanted. Um, it was a great interview. And so it, it, if anything, if I could do it again, I would, I would have planned for 10 hours. And we ended up talking for four hours. But, um, you know, I, it wasn't nervous. You know, I, this is my job and I'm used to talking to people. Like, you know, it, so it wasn't like I was nervous about talking to him. Maybe there was a bit of it and that he's been a, you know, there's been times when he's been a prickly interview, but, but, he, uh, but that was clear that he wasn't going to be like that. 
pretty soon after. I was mostly just nervous of getting, covering all the ground I needed to cover in such a short amount of time. So, you know, for obviously such a key figure um, in the book. But, you know, the truth is, is that he didn't dodge a single question. And I think he enjoyed the interview more than I thought he was going to. Because by that point, he had been away from the spotlight for a while. And also, you know, I had talked to all these people from his childhood, you know, his friends from when he was a little kid, you know, to guys he went to college with. And, you know, it was a little bit like a This Is Your Life episode. So I think he, you know, it was enjoyable for him on that, on that count. And so he, he had a good time. And the fact that he was enjoying himself, you know, made it an easier interview. And where was the interview conducted? It was weirdly at a restaurant in uh, in the 50s in, in the west side of Manhattan. And we met early before anyone was there. It might have been before the place opened, or maybe just when it opened. But, but by the time, like, it, it went up until lunch, so it was packed. And, it, you know, Letterman is one of these people who are both very famous, but also you don't see very often out in New York. So... People, it's like a, being with the center of a tornado because everyone's sort of gawking and looking. You just have to sort of, my job is just to kind of zone it out and try to not pay attention to the circus, which is what it is when he, you know, walks, walks into a rest up crowded restaurant. I'm sure you were super focused on the interview and, and getting the information out of him, but I'm hoping maybe you can share like a passing thought that you maybe had. You're sitting there with Letterman, the last giant yeah. of late night. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what were your thoughts? I mean, it, it's a little surreal. It's a little surreal because obviously he's this guy who I've been, you know, watching my whole life and thinking about for this book for years. And so to see him in the flesh is, if I take out of it a little bit, if I, if I, if I look away from it or look at it like from above, it's it's a little bizarre, but to be honest with you, you know, the he 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 wasn't his affect and stuff wasn't. I mean, he was, for example, serious, which you know he was also he was charming and funny, but he was you know generally thoughtful and serious, which you know as someone who interviews comedians for a living, that's that's sort of standard. The um, you know there was this one moment when I told when I. You know, the one time I had been to the late, I went to the second week of the Late Show, um, and when I was on CBS in '93, and when I went there, I was a, I was the summer before I went to college, and I went to the usher and I asked for a an autograph, and the usher said, "You can get autographs, you get a can of spam." So I that and the, the doors were opening in ten minutes, so I had to get a can of spam in Times Square in ten minutes or miss the show. So I raced around trying to get it. I finally found it, and I rushed back, and I, I gave him this can of spam, and I watched the show. Then afterwards, the, uh, I found the usher, and the back it said, I loves my spam, David Letterman. And so I was, had been telling the story for decades, and I was always curious about it, and because I was like, oh, do they, do they always get people to get cans of spam or whatever? And uh, so I told him the story years later, and right when I started telling the story, he sort of stopped me and he was like, you know, uh, that I didn't sign that. That was somebody else who, for, who signed that for me, for sure. I didn't know. And that was sort of an interesting moment because it was that he was clearly like he, I, I was sort of in that moment describing the fans excitement and he had to 
be like, no, actually, that was all a lie. <laughs> and he felt bad about it. You could see he felt bad about it. And he was apologetic about it. And in, at the same time, it's not like I was like, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, not that kid anymore. So it wasn't like I was devastated by it. <laughs> but it was an interesting moment that, you know, what it's like to like live with these expectations of fandom. You know, there's obviously all these good sides to it, but there's also the sort of responsibility of it. And, uh, and you can kind of see both that and also his sort of his habit of taking like a somewhat negative experience or and then sort of dramatizing it, <laughs> which, you know, seemed very characteristic of him. We're joined by Jason Zinneman, author of Letterman, The Last Giant of Late Night. I got this quote from Don Giller, the Don's. The Dons. I love the Dons. <laughs> and to tell some of the people out there that maybe don't know, he is digitizing, is it every single episode of Letterman and putting it on YouTube? He's the only person on earth who has every single episode ever recorded that he ever, of Letterman, but, but most of, but, all, but not all of them are digitized. So he's in the process of doing that. And he was absolutely invaluable essential to not just my book but but so many people who read about letterman because if they want an episode they they have to go to the dons and and uh and he'll you know he he will in no time if 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 if, if he likes you uh send it to you so he's he's become kind of i wrote about him in times the sort of unofficial archivist for for david letterman well given that this this should be high praise he said I like the way he handled the extensive Letterman interview he conducted for the book. Instead of highlighting it, he merged relevant quotes seamlessly into the narrative. Just another voice among equals, instead of it being the definitive word. So, with that note, I would be curious, and the Dons would be curious to know, what was the approach that you were trying to take? What were you trying to create with this book? <laughs> well, I think that is, and that's, you know, that's very nice to hear from the Dons. And, uh, and I think that's rooted in my experience as a reporter, which is to say that like one person's take on a situation is just that, that if you really want to get, if you, you know, it's amazing how you could like see like something happening on the street that five people see, you talk to those five people and they all describe the same thing, but they have slightly different takes on it or slightly different shades on it. So this operates in a very peculiar way when it comes to like famous people who have told the same stories over and over again about their, who have very specific and, and calcified narratives about their life that, uh, you know, you can learn a lot about Brian De Palma by talking to Brian De Palma, but you can learn even more in my experience by talking to all the people around Brian De Palma and then talking to Brian De Palma and then, <laughs> and then you compare those notes. So that was always the, you know, idea with, with uh, Letterman is that, you know, he has his narrative of his life that has been told many, many times. And it's also weird. This is also something about how memory works. You know, we all do. Right. I have my memory about, oh, people say, oh, how do you get your job? And I describe it and I've told the story so many times that when I tell it now, I remember telling the story, not the actual events. <laughs> so it's, it's even when you think I'm not saying anyone's lying. I'm saying even the way you build your own narratives, you, you end up telling things that aren't, uh, you know, they're mild kind of deceptions. And, and what the reporter can do is 
can try to get closer to the truth by talking to as many different people around, you know, as many different perspectives and then compare them and, and, and try to look at, you know, judge what each person's motivation, through the lens of each person's motivation, et cetera. So, you know, what Don is saying is true, that what Letterman said about these things is tremendously important and in, in to, to his story and, and, and critical. But I also learned a lot, not just from talking to other people, but talking to other people and asking Letterman, all right, so what, this is what this person said about this experience. What's your take on that? I mean, in a lot of ways, you know, for instance, Letterman is like, when I talked to him, was, was, was you know, incredibly humble and you know, took, takes no credit for anything. You know, everything is, oh, right, I came up with this, or I was, you know, he's, you know, he's always very self-deprecating. It's not like, you know, some people, it's like they're always puffing themselves up. Letterman is the opposite situation is that, you know, it's almost, can I trust that he did so little? Because, and a lot of the times you can't. The, uh, and I, you know, especially because as I've told you, I sort of like, part of my argument is that all these other people who were important to the show, there was a, there came a period when I, I, I had to ask myself, all right, am I biased because Letterman is so quick to not take credit for anything. And so it's a complex thing to figure out the truth of these stories, but it begins with reporting, you know, and reporting means talking to people who are not famous and famous, have little clout, have a lot of clout, who have all different kinds of angles, guests, production, you know, writers, people with big megaphones, the small ones. It's really important, I find, to get a diversity of viewpoints on the same event. I know you mentioned at the beginning of the interview that you were a Dylan fan. And yeah. from the writer of The Times, they are changing. When I read your book the second time, Letterman, The Last Giant of Late Night, it occurred to me how much the book was about change. You know, mm. <laughs> and it, it's so... It's so cool that that Dylan, in one of the last episodes of the show, of the show, decides to sing that that old song, "The Night We Called It a Day." It was like it felt like Dylan was coming in and announcing the end of an era. You know? Yes, yes, definitely. I would be curious to know: Did writing this book did it have an effect on your on your own life, or maybe how you look at change? Wow, that's another great question. It definitely did. I mean, one, it made me miserable for a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's writing a book is really hard, and it's it takes away a lot of your time and attention. But you know, sort of your like intellectual time and 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 uh, and physical and actual time. So that's that's one thing. But you know, I mean, th this book was like a real big. You know, it was a big accomplishment for me. It was one of the most ambitious reporting projects and, and critical projects of my life, maybe the biggest. And it's very hard for me to, you know, it's something that was both personally, as I said, like both mattered a lot to me and, and my own life, but also to the culture. So it was, you know, I saw it as a very personal, a very personal, even in the sense of like, all right, you know, he, my sense of humor is really defined by this guy. So to see where it, that comes from is interesting. And both the, you know, the, even, and that has the negative side too. I mean, there's a, you know, there's a lot of themes in the book about like the meanness of the humor, 
the ironic distance, what you know, the the the, the kind of ironic distance that is embedded in Letterman's sense of humor that has such an influence on people like me and of my generation, did that prevent uh, me from, you know, did that prevent people from expressing other kinds of uh, emotions? I think you become more aware of what sort of seeing the world through this, you know, highly ironic, self-deprecating pose does to you. And I think, you know, it can be very helpful in terms of expressing yourself in some ways, but I think in other ways it can be limiting. So better understanding that was definitely, I think, you know, helped was, was, you know, was life changing. And I think, but I also just think in the sense of like, Oh, this was really hard. It was incredible. It was incredibly hard to pull off. I'm really proud of it. And you know, who knows, maybe this is the, this is uh once I, once I did it, you know, I was like, all right, th- this is, maybe this is what I, I should be doing. You know, th- this, you spend a lot of your career doing all kinds of different things and trying different things. And, and, you know, the things that are the hardest are often the most satisfying. And that clearly was, this was one of them. And so now I'm sort of in a place where I'm like, all right, I'm trying to figure out what's the next version of this. It's very hard to figure it out. It's very hard. I don't see it right now. Like what's something that I think is as personally worthwhile and as, and, and as big of a subject that, that is not only that is the kind of subject that is, that is, I can do a good job with and that I feel I can do a good job with that. Also, I think the other thing that I think is suited for me for this book is that it mixes reporting and criticism, which is, you know, I think at, at my best, I do both and, and mix and meld them. So anyways, that, that's all to say that, you know, it, it was, it was a very important life-changing book that makes me look at my work in a, in a very different way. All the listeners out there, they can follow you on Twitter it's Zinnemann, at Zinnemann. It looks kind of like Zinnemann, but it's Zinnemann. And they can follow you. And thank you very much for making the time to talk to me. I would like to just kind of give you the microphone in closing. Just let you take the stage, whatever you'd <laughs> like to say to the audience. Well, no, I think, yeah, I, I just said this, is, this has been, you've asked fantastic questions. This is the ones I haven't heard before, which I appreciate, and that made me think harder, and I really am grateful for it, and it's just a pleasure to be on the show with someone who's, you know, so smart, asking good questions, and also clearly a, a fan and appreciator of, of his work. Well, that's kind of you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. All right. Till next time. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time.